I always consider it a privilege to come and to open God's Word and to share things and still have uh, uh, Pastor Joey here to sort of hear, hear things. And so it's go- hopefully it's going to be a special time for us to get into the Word. It's interesting. Um, there are some great novels that are out there, and some of them are known for their opening lines. In John Steinbeck's book of Mice and Men, the opening line is, the best laid plans of mice and of men ang aft a glee. That means always go wrong. The best laid plans of mice and men always go wrong. I was planning this week to sort of jump ahead and to look at uh, Joseph in Genesis chapter 49. But my wife sort of said something that sort of parallels this, but I probably embellished it. She said something to to the effect of, isn't it great that we have the opportunity to study God's Word verse by verse so when people get to go home, they can open up God's Word and to understand it? So I decided to pick up where we left off last time, and so that is what we're going to be doing this morning. So if you have your, your sword, please open it up to Genesis chapter 49, and we're going to be picking up the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 49, looking at Jacob's sons. We have been looking at the, uh, the story of Joseph, and we've been saying since the beginning of his story that the story of the life of Joseph really isn't about Joseph. The story of the life of Joseph is a detailed description of God's working in the life of Jacob into bringing about Judah into preeminence of the family. So we have Joseph and his story being told to the Hebrew people that God is always working providentially in the lives of his people to bring about his redemption plans to the next step. To do so, God has to bring Judah into preeminence. And that's what we have been seeing as the life of Joseph has been unfolding. God has used the events in Joseph's life to use the sins of his brothers, sending him into slavery, coming to a place of power under Pharaoh, stockpiling food for seven years due to the seven years of famine that were approaching, bringing his entire family out of the land of promise, bringing them into Egypt so they would not starve, so that the line of the promised seed would continue. So Joseph's story is a story about God's providence working in the lives of his people. And in chapter 49, Jacob is about to die. He may have only a few minutes left, but he uses these moments to be used by God to bring blessing to his sons. And so he's been on his deathbed since the beginning of chapter 48. And here in chapter 49, he's currently mustering all of his strength to continue to speak to his sons, in which he is about to give them his last words. And so as we've said, as chapter 49 began to unfold, this is a very different kind of section than what we've had previously almost in the entire book of Genesis. This is a prophetic uh, section. We've been dealing with narrative, which is essentially a set of events 
or a story being told through these events. And now we come to a poetic section, if you would, that talks about prophecy. And so 20% of the Bible at the time in it was written had a prophetic element, whether or not there was a near fulfillment or a far fulfillment of even of thousands of years. And so this is what we have here. Jacob is about to tell his son blessings. And most of these things won't affect them directly, but it will get passed on to their descendants. They focus in on some of their characteristics and how they live their lives, but also begins to look at more than that. When they go into the promised land and settle into the land, some of the characteristics in which they are going to be um, endeavoring in. And so we come to um, interpret prophecy in a different way than how we would interpret a narrative. Prophecy, as we shall see and, and have been seeing, that it is filled with symbols and pictures which describes its meaning. And since the beginning of chapter 49, we've seen um, symbols of water, a lion, a staff. We've seen pictures of wine, a serpent, a donkey. We're going to see a picture of a doe, a vine, and a wolf, and many others that are found within these verses. And so these pictures, they're character traits of how, either how they live their life or what is going to be taking place in the future for their descendants. And so through it all, it sort of helps underscore the fact that when you're dealing with prophecy, we are dealing with God's sovereignty being displayed. Because God is the one who is the only person who knows the future. And he knows the future because he has preordained the future since the beginning of eternity past, whenever that was. And so he's going to call each one of his sons by name individually to come and to hear what God has in store for them. And I'm sure as he brings up each son, he's going to be looking at them in the eye as he describes God's prophetic element to them, some of which are, are, are very um, comforting to them, some of which are, are not. And so, but yet we get to see God is going to be working through the lives of his people in the future. It's interesting as these verses begin to unfold, as Jacob, Jacob has lived a very long life, he is continuing to be used by God in his final moments of his life upon the earth. This sort of helps us underscore the fact that with each one of us, no matter how old we are, God has a purpose for you no matter how old you may be. You may be in your teens, you may be in your mid-years, you may be in your latter years, but it doesn't matter. God has a purpose for you in the church to be used greatly by Him. And so He's letting God speak through Him to give a word of prophecy to his people. And so all of God's word has relevance. And so some people may say, well, why are we spending so much time in Genesis chapter 49? Because we should be uh, proclaiming God's word to affect the lives of God people today and what they need to hear. I can hear that often. But yet, as, as we've been seeing through these verses, though they deal with God's people, they do 
reflect upon where we are today in the 21st century. They may not necessarily have a direct uh, interpretation for us, but there are great patterns in which we can implore within our own life. And so if you would, look at uh, verse 19 as we sort of pick up the story, and I'll be reading through, through, uh, through the verse 27. And please follow as I read along. Beginning in Genesis chapter 49, verse 19, we find this. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich. He will yield royal dainties. Naphali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From his hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings from the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Let's bow our heads so God can speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you that we can come and to open the pages of your revealed word to us. And it is through those pages we get to see you on display and who you are and how you have worked within human history. It's amazing that your word is inerrant because it reflects who you are. And so we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit so that we can glean not just knowledge but truth to be able to apply that. And so during the moments that we have, Father, we ask that your Spirit can give us eyes to see and ears to hear, for each one of us is in a different place in our walk with Christ. But yet, Father, your Spirit can take the words that we hear and to be able to um, apply them in a unique way to each one of us. And so, Father, we ask that you can speak to us so that your glory is on display and we can lift up the name of Christ through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick things up at verse 19 and look at Jacob's seventh son, but it's the first son of Zilpah who was Leah's servant, Gad. And in, in verse 19, we only have two lines mentioned for Gad, but there is a lot here. In verse 19, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. And so this is a prophetic element once again, which is going to look into the future for about four, 500 years. 
And it has reference to when the nation of Israel will go into the land and settle into the land and the decisions that they make, and it has repercussions because of where they settle in the land. And so after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after coming out of Egypt, the tribe of Gad, they decide where they want to settle in the land. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to show you this. In Numbers chapter 32, we find how they made their decision on where they settled in the land because it has reference to what is being talked about here. And so in Numbers chapter 32, we find in verse 1, we find this statement. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. Keep that in mind. So when they saw the land of Zaar and the land of Gilead, that's part of, uh, when you look at the New Testament, that's the area where Gad is going to settle. It was indeed a place suitable for livestock. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and spoke to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, jump down to verse 4, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of of Israel is a land for livestock. Look at that land. It's perfect. They had not yet um, crossed over into... um, Western, the, the, they haven't crossed into uh, the River Jordan yet, so they're on the eastern side of the land. And this land is perfect for livestock. And your servant had livestock. We got a great number of livestock. Verse 5, And they said, If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. God told his people, when you get to the land, cross the the Jordan, go settle into the land. This is not yet in the land, but they want to stay here. They said, we like this place. It looks good. It's perfect for our livestock. And so in verses 6 and following, Moses said, well, how do we know that when times of battle, if you stay east of the Jordan River, that you will help us battle against the enemies here? And so in verse 16, we find their answer. And and they came near to him and said, We will build here sheepfolds for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel. And so they settled east of the Jordan. And so they settled outside the land that God had promised but it's going to come at a high cost. Go back to Genesis chapter 49. They settle into the land, and we find in the next part of the verse, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him. As we have said with a number of the sons, there's a play on words to where the meaning of their name corresponds to the blessing that that they get. Sometimes there's a parallel there. Sometimes there's a a contrast that is being talked about. Here, there's a similarity because there's the same root word. The name Gad means a troop or a group of ones who are able to fight. 
Raiders here is the same root word, which also means a troop. So what we have here is that we have outsiders who are going to come in to fight, and they're going to fight against the ones who are able to fight. That's the prophecy. They settle into the land, and they settle into the place in which there are going to be foreign raiders outside of the land coming in and being aggressors who will invade their land, steal from them, kill them, and then do that on a constant rotating basis. That is what takes place because they did not enter into the land and settle there. And so these raiders, as for Gad, raiders are going to raid him. These foreign aggressors are going to be there. And so when the land was divided up in the book of Joshua, Gad settled east of the Jordan River, an area that was plush for livestock. It was perfect for raising sheep and raising cattle. Two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, desired this land and also did the same. And so this land looked prosperous. It looked inviting. How could one turn away such a prime place to raise livestock was in their minds. The trouble is, in the same area, the land was owned by the Ammonites and the Moabites, who were great enemies of God throughout the history of Israel. And so the Jordan River would would have made a great natural barrier to keep foreign invaders out. And so if you imagine these foreign invaders, they would sort of be like a, and if you have one, I apologize, a chihuahua. So you know, a chihuahua, they, they sort of hide, and then they sort of jump out, and they nip at you. I grew up with one, so I know. And so they nip at you, and as soon as they nip at you, they run away. That's how these foreign invaders were. They were just coming, coming in at, at any time that they wanted to, whether or not it was the middle of the night, in the middle of, of the day, at any moment, they would come in, invade, and they would plunder, they would kill, they would do whatever they want to do. And so that would happen. And it's because the Ammonites and the Moabites, who were enemies of of God, that they were there. And so they had no real safety. They had no real peace while they lived there, and so they had to adjust. So with this property, it is stating that, that marauders will be a constant threat for them. But yet, the tribe of Gad did not fully take that into consideration. When they looked at the land, the land looked prosperous. The land looked good on the outside. And so they chose it. But yet the descendants of Gad would have to deal with that and find a way to be able to survive. And to do that, if you're going to survive in such an area, you would have to become an ongoing warrior, always on call. And that was the tribe of Gad. Because in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, in verse 8, we find this description of the tribe of Gad. It says, From the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, and whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were as swift as the gazelles on the mountain." 
How did these men, would be uh, later called David's mighty men, be so good at warfare? It's because they had to learn how to protect their families. And so this warfare mentality was a part of their lives. A hard life brings about hard men. And so these foreign marauding invaders were going to be a constant plague on the tribe of Gad. And so they had to find a way to, to struggle and to live with it. Interesting, as the Old Testament begins to unfold, the nation of Israel never truly defeated the Ammonites or the, Moab, the Moabites. They were some of Israel's deadliest enemies. And so this all came about that when Gad, the tribe of Gad, came to the land, they looked on how good the land was, but they never consulted God in their decision-making. That was the difference. God told them to go into the land. They saw that where they were, this, this, is, this is better. They never consulted Moses. Can God let us stay here? That was not a part of their equation. They just saw, we would like to stay here. And so with the condition that they would be warriors ready to go, and they became that. And so they saw the beauty and the potential, and they made their decision upon that. That is the tribe of Gad. That's an issue for us also many times within our own walk because Gad looked at everything and how it looked to the eye, how it was pleasing and, and potentially uh, benefiting themselves. This land looked good and was, it pleased them, but they did not look at the situation from an eternal perspective or through spiritual eyes. The same thing happened with Eve at, at the garden. They could choose to eat from, from whatever they wanted to, but she looks at the forbidden fruit, and to her it looked good. It looked inviting, and, it, and she was drawn to that. And so even though the land east of Jordan looked good, they never consulted God. And so not by consulting God and trusting on Him and where to go, they paid dearly for it with a hard, painful life to them and to their descendants. And so we can learn from, from Gad because when it comes time for us, we have great decisions to make in our own life. There are many things that, that we go about, where we're going to live, who we're going to marry, what home to buy, what car to buy, what, what, how we're going to raise the kids. And many of those things, uh, we can make our decisions just based on outward appearances. Something can look very good, and appealing to us can be the worst road that we can ever travel. And so when it comes time for decision-making, we need to have godly wisdom. We all know Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. We're, to, we're told to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not into our own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. And that's the kind of wisdom that we are talking about. It's that godly wisdom. is that wisdom that we can find within God's Word to help us discern where we are to be walking, where we are to be going. And so if you're a single man who is here today, you have big decisions on who you're going to date, who you're going to be marrying. 
Many times, single men, they just look at outward beauty, and that's what they base their decision on. Outward beauty can be very fleeting. It may look good today, may, may not look as good later on. But godly character will remain the same. And so when you begin to look at what is important, it's not necessarily the outward appearance. It's that inner godly character to where you can grow in mesh with. And so single men, there's a life principle. There is no evangelistic dating. No, that rarely works out. Single women, you're not off the hook either. You don't choose whom you like to find a spouse with their appearance nor their career. It's that same godly character. They have to at least be where you are right now. And so there needs to be a maturity. There needs to be a walking with Christ now, not later on. Looking for a home. Homes are expensive no matter where you go. Sometimes a home may, may look like it's the perfect place, be nice and big, but it's a little over our budget. Are we willing to put our family under a financial crisis? We need to consult God. Looking to move out of state, you're, you're dissatisfied with things. Maybe I should go to Texas where, where, it's, where it's 120 degrees and sometimes as, as 150 degrees. Uh, percent humidity or whatever. It's, it's humid. D down in Houston, it's just humid. Why, why go there? It's nice here. It's just too, too liberal, too crazy. It's too expensive. Well, some Christians got to hang around here to evangelize the pagans. There's someone has, has to bring people to faith. God's going to provide those crazy taxes that, that, that they're going to ask for. And so asking God where we are going to move, we can't just look on things from the outside perspective. There's an eternal perspective. Just like with businessmen, sometimes we make our decisions just based on profitability. And so that can go awry, bringing on the wrong partners, bringing on um, people that, that don't love Christ because we look at the outward situ situations. And so the decisions that we make, no matter what they are, need to be based upon God's Word and have godly wisdom, or its impact can affect us immensely. So that's, uh, that's, that's, Ash, that's Asher. No, that's, where, um, <laughs> that's Gad. But look at verse 20, if you would. It's going to be one of the mornings. Look at verse 20. We find the next son, the eighth son of Jacob, and the second son of Zilpah, Leah's servant, in Asher. Once again, he just gets two verses. Because as you're going to look ahead in Joseph, there, there, there's eight verses going on. But in, in these two verses, once again, there is much going on. And as for Joseph... Begins to speak to his son Asher. Um, Sir Asher moves closer to him, looks his father in, in the eye, and Jacob looks at him and says this, As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield dainties. The prophecy centers around great prosperity for the descendants of Asher. In the land in which Asher is going to be settling, he will be given, it will be rich in produce, in prosperity, in productivity. 
The tribe of Asher is going to have one of the best places for them to settle, for it will be right on the Mediterranean Sea. You have the seaports. You have, you have the nice houses right, right, right on the water. But with, with the seaports comes business. Ships can come in with trade. Ships can go out with, with trade. Uh, it is a place of great influence because different kinds of food can, can come in from around the world, from foreign markets you can trade with. And the land of Asher is going to be a very prominent place within the trade level of the nation of Israel. Being so close to the shore, you had a different level of rainfall because of the humidity being higher, closer to, to the sea. So the soil would be more fertile. And so this area would also not only be um, prosperous in his business, but also agriculturally very rich. And so the people of Asher would profit greatly from it. So much so, look at um, the, the last part of verse 20. Asher will yield royal dainties. Dainties mean delicacy. They will have delights of the food. The Hebrew word here is royal, which means kingly. And so the people of, of, of Asher are going to have such wealth and prosperity in access to different kinds of food um, that is known in the world, to where their food will be truly fit for a king. And so Asher will, have, will be very rich in food, so much so it is fit for a king. Once again, with his name, there's a play on words going in that's in concern with, with this prophecy. The name Asher means happy or fortunate. And so this prophecy deals with the great abundance that Asher, whose name means fortunate, will experience. He will experience much more abundance than any of the other 11 tribes. And so this is a positive aspect around the prophecy of, of Asher. But with this great prosperity, there is a price. There is a negative aspect. And we see this great price being mentioned in Judges chapter 5 in verse 17. This great abundance came at a huge cost. Judges 5 verse 17 says, Gilead, that's where, um, uh, that's where Gad is, remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in the ships? And Asher stay, uh, sat at the seashore remained by its landings. In Judges chapter 5, they're trying to raise an army through, uh, through the judge, and it is time for battle. The tribes had to bring about men to fight the people who were giving them oppression. Not just Gad, but Dan, but Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. What caused this? What caused them to stay home? Well, Asher's name means fortunate. They got content with their prosperity and their abundance. They had the world coming to them. They had all that what they could need. They didn't have time to worry about other things. They were living a life of luxury and prosperity because the world was coming to them. 
And when that happens, when the world is coming to you, it affected their walk with the Lord. They became complacent. They became lethargic. They had so much that they became lazy and lost their willingness to fight for the Lord. So they stayed home. They lost their will to do things for the Lord. They just got too comfortable enjoying the best that life had to order. With all that luxury, why should you go out and endure hardship? And so with them enduring um, all this luxury, they began to look and act exactly like the world, so much so that it affected their walk with God. And one's walk with God and their walk with the world cannot mix together. It doesn't happen. A believer's walk with God should make us look different, act different, be different, talk different than what the world is. That's exactly Paul's warning in Romans chapter 12 in verse 2 where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like the Phillips uh, translation uh, for that verse. Phillips says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And so the world is trying to make you and God's people look exactly like it in how it reacts to things and how they talk and what they are to believe. And we see that exactly today, for if there's any kind of contrary, you get pushback. And not just pushback, it's big pushback. And so pushback happens when you don't look like the world. But Asher, he was content with the things of the world. He stayed home. Their, lo- their lo- luxury bred laziness and apathy. And so the tribe of Asher had to go to the place where they wanted to stay home and to enjoy the things that they wanted to do instead of to fight for the Lord and to do what the Lord wanted them to do. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation. Pastor Joey has been going through the seven churches. You can shake your head yes, and and we've been there for a while. And so I want you to look at one of the church. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Just open your Bible and let it fall open because we've been in Revelation for a while and it should naturally fall, over, uh, fall open to the last book of the Bible. But in Revelation chapter 3 in verse 15, we see the church of Laodicea. And there's a scathing rebuke to them to where we may have our lives sometime look exactly like the church at Laodicea. Look at verses, we're going to look at verses 15 through, uh, through 22, but let's start at verse 15. Jesus is telling them, I know your deeds. Jesus is speaking to each one of the seven churches. In each one of the churches, he says, I either know your situation, I know, I know where you dwell, or I know your deeds. He knows every single detail of what is going on in their life showing his sovereignty and his omniscience, and he knows exactly what was going on in their walk with God. I know your deeds, and not just that, I know that you're neither hot 
nor cold. And I wish you were either hot or cold. Spiritually, I I would rather have you spiritually cold or spiritually hot, but you're lukewarm. And so in verse 16, and hopefully I don't contradict anything Pastor Joey says, because I was awake, and, and so you became lukewarm and are neither hot nor cold. And because you're lukewarm, I will... I will spit. It's the literal word there is vomit once again. I will vomit you out of my mouth. And look why they are lukewarm again. Verse 17, because you say, and there are three things going on. You say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of what? Nothing. I don't need anything from God. I can provide it or buy it for myself. I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I have nothing. But in reality, the next part of verse 17, you do not know. You're none of that. You're the opposite. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind and naked. Five scathing rebukes. There's nothing there. You think you, you know where to walk? You're actually, you're actually blind. You think you're rich? You're, you're poor. You think you have something to offer? You're miserable. You think that you're sophisticated? You're wretched. You think that you, you're nice, but you're actually spiritually naked. There's nothing of value there in God's eye. And so Jesus audits the spiritual deeds of the church, and they come up empty. They lost their distinctiveness of being in Christ because they are in the world. They lack nothing in their, in their life, not even, they don't even need God. They're completely self-sufficient. They're completely self-satisfying. May not this be true of you? Look at verse 18. And so that's where they are. But instead of being wealthy in yourself, he says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold. Don't don't use your own gold. It's fool's gold. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's not anything of value. It's fool's gold. But buy your gold from me because this gold is refined by fire, so it's pure, resulting in you may become rich. In white garments, so that you may be clothed yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And so, if you come to Christ and buy your, um, your spiritual wealth from Him, He will, he will give you sight. He will, he will um, cover your nakedness. He will take away your shame. He will give you uh, clothes and raiments of righteousness. He will make you spiritually rich if you go to him. In verse 19, in whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and turn from your sin. Repent. There are times that God's people need to see where they are and need to see they're spinning their wheels in the wrong place like a little hamster on a little spinny thing, and they're not going anywhere spiritually because it's easy to play church. And so there is a reality going on. You think you might be rich, but in reality you're spiritually poor. You think you have everything, though you may want more money and more things, but you actually have nothing. And look at verse 20. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. Jesus hasn't given up on them. If you turn from your sin and acknowledge your sinfulness, he is willing to come in. He's there. Let me in. I'm here. Open the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Not only will I come in, I will come and dine with you. There's an intimacy in he with me. He who overcomes, that word overcomes, as we have seen, is mentioned for all the churches. He who, he who has the faith that is real, they will overcome whatever that they are lacking, and I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ is there. We can leave today knowing that Christ, and no matter what we have done, no matter where we are, no matter what we are doing, Christ can come in and dine with us. And so that is Asher. That is where we are. We live in such a wealthy part of the country that we can take our eyes off of Christ and just get very complacent. But the job goes on. The days are dangerous. The days are dark. And God wants to use you in the 21st century today to bring his name glory. But look at verse 21. We find the next son, Naphtali. In verse 21, this is the last of the two sons of Jacob and Bilhah. And we have the son Naphtali. So Jacob, uh, Jacob finishes with his last son, and now he begins to focus on his next son, and I'm sure his next son brings near, closer to his father to hear, well, what about me? And he hears this in verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. It's a great picture. This is a prophecy which is going to emphasize where they dwell on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. And so Naphtali is going to be a special place right on the left side, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. That's important. That's a very favorable area for a number of reasons. And we, and we see two things which sort of stand out here about the prophecy of Naphtali. First of all, we, saw, we see that Naphtali is a doe. That's a young deer if you didn't catch on. It's a doe let loose. And a doe has its ability to spring and run. So it talks about quickness and swiftness and its agility and speed. And so this is about how their military operation would function, that when they brought an army together, they would be great in swiftness and agility. And we're told how this came about in Judges chapter 6. And so they had a great ability to bring about a military ar army in what they could do to help win the battle. But not just that, because with the moments that we have left, we have to move on. There's a second thing in the last part of verse 21. He gives beautiful words. May not seem important, but that's a great statement. 
In Judges chapter 5, though we're not going to be spending any time there, I'm just going to mention in Judges chapter 5, we have the song of Deborah and Barak. If you want a good devotional time, look at some of the songs that we have in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. We have a great song of praise called the song of Deborah. After a battle, they're praising the Lord, and in just in the whole chapter of great words, looking on the glory in honor of the Lord in what they do. And so there is a picture of fulfillment um, that is found throughout the tribe of Naphtali's life, and that's just one of the elements. But yet, there's a greater fulfillment that is being made, not directly through the descendants of Naphtali, but where they settle in the land has great significance in the history of Israel and in your history. Because it's not someone from that tribe that would have an influence, but someone who had the, the major influence of his ministry in the area of Naphtali. He would be one when he preached his first message. It would be in the area of Naphtali, and he calls four fishermen, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, to leave everything that they would do and to travel with him. He would bring about a message of the gospel of salvation. He would preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he would go from town to town preaching the word of God with such authority in the area of Naphtali in a way that they have never heard before. There's a passage I want you to look at in Isaiah chapter 9 that we sometimes miss but it has this prophetic element about the land of Naphtali. In Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 1, Jesus in Matthew 4 is going to quote this passage and tell the nation of Israel that this passage is being fulfilled through him. In chapter 1, we find this. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the name of Naphtali with contempt. But later, and here it comes, he shall make the the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali glorious by the way of the sea and on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, And then the people who walked in darkness... That's the people of Naphtali. We'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nations and you shall increase their gladness. Jump down to verse 6. Same context. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no more end to his increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. The the area in which our Lord did much of his earthly ministry was in Galilee, the land of Naphtali. He was the one who brought about beautiful words in that land. He brought about the words of the gospel to bring about faith to to those who were lost. Some of the most beautiful words that are recorded in, in God's word 
were spoken by him. We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Words of hope, words of comfort. In John chapter 10, My sheep shall hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Words of comfort, glorious words spoken. Sometimes they were harsh words to those who, um, who were um, the, to the religious leaders. But now those words, they come to you to this day. We too can hear those same beautiful words, the best words that a, a person can ever hear, that their sins can be completely forgiven. That the sins that they do, that they can receive satisfaction from God's wrath by Christ's atoning work on how Christ uh, rescues us from the realm of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And so he gives us light to know where to walk and how to live. He, he removes and for, forgives us from all of the shame and guilt of our sin. And he gives us his righteousness because it's imputed over to us. And all of the sin and all of the shame that I committed was given over to him when he died upon the cross. He gives us the Holy Spirit to be that down payment, that pledge that guarantees our salvation, that no one will be snatched out of his hand. And he empowers us. He is the one who is the good shepherd to guide us, to provide for us, to protect us. Great, beautiful words that we would never trade. And much of them were spoken in the land of Naphtali as he ministered. And so these words, they come to us. And for those who don't understand those words, you need to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. You need to give him the glory, not yourself. Because there's only one way to the Father, and that's through what Christ had done. There isn't many ways there isn't a best way, there's only one way, and that's to turn to Christ. And for some of you, you may be riding on the faith of your parents, because you still go to church and you still do things. You, you may even know the lingo, but you haven't turned to Christ, and you need to turn to Christ for salvation, because your sin damns you, but Christ is there to save you. Not just he just brings about eternal life in heaven, but he saves you from God's wrath that you rightly deserve. But yet there's one more with a few moments that we have left. We're going to jump over Joseph to the last son, Benjamin. Just a few things that I just want to make note there before we come to the, the table. And Jacob is there to breathe some of his last words as he gets to Benjamin, who is Jacob's 12th son and the second son of his wife, beloved wife, Rachel. Look down at verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours his prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. The tribe of Benjamin. 
When you look at the Old Testament, the tribe of Benjamin is one of the most important tribes in the nation of Israel. Queen Esther came from the tribe of Benjamin. Two of the great Saul's that is mentioned in God's word come from the tribe of Benjamin. The first one was King Saul, and the second one was the Saul of Tarsus, who later God changed his name to Paul. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the two tribes that when the United Kingdom split after Solomon, ten tribes went to the north and two tribes stayed to the south, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was loyal to the proper Davidic king line, and so they have a very distinguished history. And we find here that Benjamin, in his prophetic element, is being described as a ravenous wolf. Now, this is not a negative picture. We may have, and I may say it with a little emphasis, ravenous, but it's not a bad picture. It's a positive picture. It's a positive picture because there were many great warriors and leaders to come out of the tribe of Benjamin. When they entered into the promised land and a job needed to get done, they were one of the tribes that were in the forefront of battles. And so he is described as not just a wolf, but a ravenous, on-the-prowl wolf. In the morning, it goes on, he devours his prey. So they will be like predators. They go out devouring and consuming. And they would be there in the forefront, preying on the enemies of God's people. And then in the evening, he divides the spoils. And the imagery here is that he kills more than what he can eat. So he can share the blessing with others who did not participate. That's the tribe of Benjamin. They will be be there to produce uh, produce victorious warriors for the nation. So much so that in in, um, 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and verse 40, they are described as men of valor. And so the tribe of Benjamin receives some of the uh, choicest land in the nation, so much so that Jerusalem is found in the area of the tribe of Benjamin. That's where the temple is going to be built. That's where the people is going to worship. That's where the sacrifices are going to be be brought for the forgiveness of sins. That's where God's Shekinah glory was to come down and go into the Holy of Holies once a year. That's where Jesus came to minister and to die and to be proclaimed king and being rejected by them. But yet one day, he's going to return to Jerusalem through the sealed eastern gate back into Jerusalem. And so Benjamin was a tribe of great privilege. They were warlike aggressors that the nation needed. And so how does this come down to us? Well, We need to remember that we are, as God's people, are in a battle. We're called to fight. Each one of us are enlisted in God's army. And there are many New Testament metaphors that has this military description being made to it. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to take up the full armor of God, of God, the helmet, the shield, the sword, and the other other aspects. Uh, We're to put it on. And fight for God. In Jude chapter, uh, verse 3, talks about that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. And so there's this imagery that we have. And within the evangelical church, 
we tend to don't like this kind of Im imagery. And, and as the Vodi Vakum, how he would describe it is that there's an 11th commandment that we have secretly, is thou shall be kind. And that usurps everything else, that Christians are just to be kind. And we are. There is an aspect that we are kind. But there's also a time for battle, to contend for the faith. Paul describes this battle in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, they're not fleshly weapons, but the divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so whether or not it's godly philosophies or evil um, ideologies, we're to fight them with the truth. The people are the mission field, but we're, we're told to bring them the truth of the gospel, of God's word. And they're not going to like that. And so we're to be in the culture, but not of the culture. We're to be bringing about God's word, and it will be a battle. And so it's a battle that we're, we fight on our knees. It's a battle in which we fight with our testimony and our witness. And it's a battle that we use the, pre the preaching and teaching of God's word. But not just that, not just we fight um, against uh, the culture, but we also fight against our flesh. There's a battle that we, that we go on that we have to fight to keep our flesh in check. And then with that, we must fight against temptation. And so there's this imagery of God's people being in battle. And the tribe of Benjamin were known for their battle readiness. Doesn't mean that we are to, as believers, are to rise up in revolt because we're to be gracious in what we say and speak the truth in love. But we don't back down when somebody disagrees with us and keeps silent. We need to learn how to answer some of the hard questions that are being asked today by opening up God's word and showing them. We need to know where to go to bring the truth, the light of the truth to them and to slay the lies of error. And so when we come to the table, we come to remember on what Christ had done for us, on where he has called us. He has called us to, to the place where one, at one time we were formerly lost in our sin. We were formerly just like the world, thinking just like them, acting just like them. But God was gracious enough to bring someone, whether or not it was from the pulpit or a personal friend or a relative praying for you, you heard the gospel and you respond because you saw your sin. And what a glorious day that was, because then you realized it was through Christ and Christ alone, through Scripture alone, by God's grace alone, that you didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to do anything to gain any acceptance for God. It's what Christ had done. But when we saw that we were helpless, deserving to go to hell, but Christ took our place, we can come and to celebrate the faith that God gives us because all of that shame and all of that guilt was taken off of us and God has given to us his perfect righteousness.
So we come to partake at the table this morning. It's something that we just don't tack on, but it's something that we celebrate all the time. Of his body that was beaten and bruised as man rejected him. Because if you were there that day, you would have rejected him too. You would have. That's what the flesh does. But he died in our place. And his body was beaten and broken. His blood was shed. But his blood needed to be shed. Because he was the Passover lamb. That innocent lamb. That spotless lamb. That died in the place of others who were to die. And so that is what we celebrate this morning. It's a celebration. But it's a celebration that is meant for believers only. And so if there is sin in your life as a believer, we ask you that you to let these elements pass. But yet, if you haven't come to faith, let the elements pass and turn to Christ. And if you don't know him, see one of the guys with a name tag in, in, in the back. They will open God's word and show you what God's word has to say about how you too can come to faith. So men, come forward. Let's, let's spend a, a, a few moments in silent prayer as we begin to, uh, to partake at the table. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for the pictures of how you have worked with your tribes as they entered into the land, many of which we see their faithfulness and how you bless when they walk close with you. But many of which, Father, they have turned from you and the repercussions that have taken place. And so, Father, we thank you that we can start every day anew, that we can start every day focused on who you are, that no matter what trial or circumstance may come into to your life, that we can give you that burden so we don't have to bear it. But most of all, Father, that you can give us strength so that we can have a faith that can bring your name glory. Thank you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name.